On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from the ram's horn and all the people trembled. Moses led them out to the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And all of Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended in the form of fire and the smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You shall have no other gods but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You will not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for other gods. You must not misuse my name, the Lord of your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. And on that day, no one in your household may do any work. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them, but on the seventh day, he rested. This is why the Lord blessed the seventh day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land your God has given you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One day in Sunday school, a teacher was discussing the Ten Commandments with her five- and six-year-olds. And after explaining to them the commandment about honoring their father and mother, the teacher asked the students, is there a commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters? Without hesitation, this little boy answered, thou shalt not kill. (laughs) This morning, I want to rescue the Ten Commandments, if that's all right with you. From a place in your past, then when they were used in a different way. The Ten Commandments may be the most recognizable verses in the entire Bible. I mean, you don't get more iconic Bible imagery than the Ten Commandments. Even those who do not attend church have a vague recollection of what they are, but in my experience, I find so many good Christian people ensnared by a misconception of what the, the big ten are supposed to do in our lives. If they talk about it or in the way they think about it, let alone the, all the laws, but just the big ten, they speak of it not how the Bible usually speaks of it. Instead of speaking of the law like the psalmists do, like in Psalm chapter 1, I delight in the law of the Lord meditating on it day and night. Or in Psalm 119, I ponder the direction of my life and I turn to follow your laws. I will hurry without delay to obey your commands. Instead of sounding like that, I 
I usually find people who are either groaning whenever the law comes up in conversation. Or they're trembling out of a sense of shame and guilt. Or they're exhausted from trying to fight the battle to get a passing grade. Or they're trying to make a political argument that the Ten Commandments are somehow the backbone of Western civilization. For many, the law, it seems, has just become this religious obligation. This sense of moral duty to God is just what we're supposed to do. And at best, it's often an inconvenience, but a mandatory addendum that's just tacked on to our salvation that we'd probably just pay lip service to or we memorize at Awana. But at the worst, it feels like this curse that keeps us from striving for holiness because we're convinced we'll never truly, completely be able to obey them. For some, I find, they say the law is just sort of the price of freedom. It's something we do in order to pay God back. That we need to somehow win God's favor. And maybe if we just do the Ten Commandments, then God will like us. And so we got to appease God if he's mad at us. If something is wrong in my life, it must be because I'm being disobedient. And so I go back to the Ten Commandments and I try to do my best to follow him because one day I want to end up in heaven. So the law, as it were, the Big Ten, it takes on a life of its own. Becoming a law unto itself, unrelated to any specific giver, disconnected from any dynamic will of the one who stands behind its formulation. And this, my friends, I don't think is freedom. I think it's just another form of slavery. So I want to rescue the law. I want to redeem the Ten Commandments from a place in your past where they might have been used differently to ensnare you in another form of slavery. Can I do that this morning? I'm convinced the source of a lot of our misunderstanding about the Ten Commandments stems from disconnecting it from the Exodus. Or in other words, maybe you're like me, but whenever I was taught the things God wants us to do and not to do, it was never done the way Scripture teaches us, in and through a story. Scholars like Terence Freetham point out that one of the most distinctive characteristics of the Old Testament law is that it's enclosed or encased in a narrative. Have you ever noticed this before? Because this, what this means, guys, is that the law doesn't appear out of nowhere like I was led to believe. It doesn't appear out of thin air. It is woven and integrated into the tapestry of a story. So what this means is that the law doesn't stand autonomous or independent from a story. It's contingent on a story. So the laws in the Old Testament should be read less like a textbook and more like a novel. They're not just this cold bunch of case laws. They're a dramatic screenplay that's unfolding with drama and conflict and tensions and context. So to understand the law, we have to understand the story. And the story goes just a little bit like this. For 430 years, the people of God lived in Egypt, most of the time in slavery. And then one day, Exodus says, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant. 
that he made with their ancestors a long time ago. And God, it says, looked down on the people and knew it was time to act. And so God appeared to a guy named Moses and he appoints him as leader and tells him that he's devising a plan to save his people. He says, I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and I'm going to liberate them from bondage. I'm going to set them free from captivity and then I'm going to personally lead them to a new place, a fertile and spacious place, a place that can be with me, let's call it a promised land. And so Yahweh comes and does battle with the leader in Egypt, the Pharaoh, along with all the pantheon of gods in Egypt. He comes down and has this epic showdown of the gods, and one by one, strike after strike, Yahweh easily dispatches the gods of Egypt until Pharaoh is the only one that's left standing, begging the people of God to leave. And then true to his word, Yahweh personally leads the charge ahead of the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And when it appears that they have hit a dead end into the wilderness by this big body of water, God parts the chaotic seas and makes a highway to safety and finally eliminates Pharaoh himself. A few weeks ago, friends, I tried to compare this to their Easter moment. In a way, Easter echoes the Exodus because Easter is the second and the final Exodus. Both are moments in time that God has intervened on people's behalf and saved them. But as we've been talking the last few weeks, After God has saved them, God took them on a roundabout way to the promised land. And it's in this desolate place, it's in the wilderness, that God begins to test them. Because like we talked about last week, salvation in Egypt was more than a reprieve from the grueling labor in the brickyards. Do you remember when we talked about this, that God is not simply saving them from a place, he's saving them from an ethos. A dehumanizing way that's symbolized in the brickyards of Egypt. Because in Egypt, the people of God and their lives and their behavior and their wills and their desires, they're all molded and shaped to better serve Pharaoh's empire in the gods of Egypt. And as we've been talking about, Egypt's not just a place, but it's a state of being. It's this mindset, it's this ideology, it's this economy, this complex web of traditions and beliefs and values and superstitions and rituals. It's a system that oppresses people, that's robbed them of our identity as image bearers of God. And so God has come to liberate them from that. And so it's in the wilderness that God begins to test them. He's using the circumstances of the wilderness wanderings as a crucible to sanctify them. Yahweh is seeing what is inside the people to see if they've truly left Egypt and if they're truly headed to the promised land. Because even though they're free, they may still be in bondage. They may be out of Egypt, but Egypt may not be out of them. And as we talked about last week, not because God needs to know this, but because the people need to know this. And it's in these different crises, running out of water, running out of food, that God is revealing to them a new system, a new operating system. It's in this system, it's in this economy that runs counter to the one in the brickyards. In Yahweh's economy, God can heal and restore you. He can remove the bitterness and the poison from the brickyards. God will provide for you. 
You don't need to fret or overwork for your provisions. God will provide for you, and God will always be with you. And so even before they even get to the promised land, God is giving them a taste of what it will be like to be there. But then it's in Exodus 19 that we arrive at a place called Sinai, this midway point between Egypt and the promised land. What happens at Sinai is such a big deal that one-third of the first five books of the Bible is dedicated to what happens here. Let me put it in another way. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy is a span of about 2,700 years. Eleven months of that is Sinai. And yet one-third of the entire Pentateuch, or roughly 59 chapters in total, is spent on these 11 months. The Israelites will not leave Mount Sinai for the rest of Exodus. In fact, they won't leave Sinai until Numbers chapter 10. And why is that? Why is there a disproportional allotment of time spent at Sinai? Well, I was listening to a great sermon by the preacher from the church I went to in college. His name is Steve Deneff, and he has this idea of why he thinks it's because it's at Sinai that the momentum shifts from leaving Egypt to entering the promised land. That the story moves from getting out to getting in. That from this is a rescue to this is a relationship with God who has rescued us. All of this happens at Sinai. God told Moses way back when that when they, he was going to rendezvous with them at this mountain. That he was supposed to be a sign that God was with them. And so when the people arrive, Moses instinctively goes up the mountain and meets with God. Depending on how, how many times you count, by the time Exodus is over with, Moses will have gone up that mountain eight times. Needless to say, I think he gets his steps in by the end of the day. The first thing Yahweh tells the people is the reason why they're here. It's the whole purpose for the Exodus. I want to read it to you. Yahweh says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and you know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now I will want you to obey and keep my covenant. So you will be my special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Moses will then scurry back down the mountain and he'll tell the people everything that Yahweh said. And the people resound with a unified yes. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. God will then go back up and he will deliver to Yahweh their positive response and the Lord will then tell them, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them. Or in other words, purify them. Tell them to abstain from anything sinful or unclean. Why? Because I'm going to show up on Mount Sinai in full view of everyone and I'm going to come close to my people and everyone's going to see me and when they do, you need to warn them that they don't touch the mountain because even if they touch the mountain or come too close, they will die. So Moses does what the Lord instructed and the people prepare themselves for Yahweh's grand entrance. And it's on the day of his arrival, what I read to you earlier, that the thunder roared and the lightning flashed like no one had seen before. And a dense cloud descended on the mountain and then there was this long, loud blast of trumpets and everyone quaked with fear and Moses led them to the foot of the mountain 
And they noticed that the mountain was scorched because it was charred from the fire. And the smoke billowed up around them. And over the top of the trumpets, Moses shouts, and the Lord thundered back these words. I'm going to say them again. You must not have any other gods but me. No idols. No blasphemy. Remember the day of rest. Honor your father and mother. No killing, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, and no coveting. This is the word of God for the people of God. This is when God finally gives them the law. Some of us think or believe he gave it to them back in Egypt, or at the very least at the start of their journey, but that's not what happened. Others may have guessed or assumed that God would wait until they arrived in the promised land, but God didn't want to do that. It's not in Egypt. It's not in the promised land. It's at Sinai, midway through their journey. It's after salvation. It's shy of consummation. After traveling with God for just a few months, learning more about him, undergoing a few tests, but well short of perfection, God gives them the Torah or the law, his instructions. And it's here that God officially invites them to trust and obey. Just a few observations, and then I'll be quiet. The law was given to people who were already saved. One of the things we forget about the law is that it was given to people who were already redeemed. It was not given so that they might be redeemed. There's a key difference there. Sinai dispels any notion that Israel somehow earned their salvation in Egypt. Israel did not do anything that warranted what God did in Egypt. This entire scene on the mountain and all the laws are predicated on verse 19, in chapter 19, verse 4. You have seen what I did, how I carried you, everything that has happened is because of something that God did. So the Israelites must not keep the law in order to, for God to save them. They've already been saved. God has already brought them out of Egypt. This is one of the biggest misconceptions from detaching the law from the story. Because some of us have this idea that we must do good things in order for God to save us. And as a result, it's this thing that motivates us to keep the law. We obey not out of a response of gratitude, but out of a response for fear. We're afraid that God will not love us if I don't do the things he tells me to do or not to do. But this wasn't because of anything that we did. We didn't earn our salvation. They didn't earn their salvation, and we didn't earn ours. The Apostle Paul will say in his letter to the Romans, because you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, he says, Christ died for the ungodly. Because God demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Us. It's because of our faith in God's amazing grace that we're saved. It's in response to this amazing grace that we're called to trust and obey. We're neither saved by these actions, nor do we remain saved by these actions. In fact, what it means to be redeemed, perhaps, is to live into being a redeemed people. Tim Mackey with the Bible Project, he shares this funny anecdote 
that a mentor of his said when he was a young believer, he says, most people think you have to be behaved to get saved. But with Jesus, you get saved, then you get behaved. My second observation. Following the law doesn't save us, but it's meant to sanctify us. Ever since they've left Egypt, God has been molding and shaping them the same way that the brickyard did. Except God has to not only purge them of their old selves as Egyptians, he has to help them adopt a new self as Israelites. God has to remake the people, and it's at Sinai, through the giving of these guidelines and principles, that God intensifies this transformation. He does this by giving them these these guidelines, these principles to follow that not only reflect his character and wisdom, but they begin to restore what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. God is giving them a new operating system, a new matrix to act towards him and other human beings. Some have made this observation before that the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God, but the last six deal with our relationship with other human beings. God is restoring how we're supposed to live in community with not only him, but with other humans, just like back at the garden. He's giving them a new self. He's giving them this identity as a treasured procession. He's giving them a new vocation as a kingdom of priests, my holy nation. He's inviting them to partner with him in redeeming not just themselves, but the rest of the world. And he won't wait until the promised land to do this. This process begins now, and it intensifies at Sinai. This is why, friends, when we read the Ten Commandments, it sounds like God is being very strict. It sounds like God is being very rigid and firm. But all of these laws that God is giving them, they counteract the things they just came out of. The natural tendencies and habits and lifestyles they picked up at the brickyard. God is trying to prevent them from reverting back to being Egyptians. Yahweh is putting up a barrier and he's saying, don't cross this barrier because the thing is stopping you from getting back the way you came. God is trying to protect them from losing the humanity that they're trying to gain. He's trying to keep them from dehumanizing themselves. He's effectively saying, if you break the laws I give you, you're going to break yourself. I really like how scholar Terence Freetham sees it. He sees the giving of these commandments as part of God as a creator, restoring our ability to be fully human, made in the image and likeness of God. Freetham argues that the law is a means by which God's will is done on heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. The Egyptians have been an example per excellence of how the justice of God's world order has been subverted, creating injustice and oppression and social chaos. The law is given to the people of God as a vehicle in and through which Egypt will not be repeated in them. And so with this in mind, it makes what the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians just make a little bit more sense. He says, since you have been made or since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off that old sinful nature that belongs in Egypt. That's my little addendum to that. And your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception, instead 
Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes and put on this new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses. I came to accomplish its purpose. Jesus didn't come to destroy or eliminate or discontinue the need for the law. He came to bring it to its completion. And so Jesus has showed us what it means to follow the law. He has breathed life into it and in his incarnation has put flesh on it and because Jesus has vanquished the power of sin on the cross and through the spirit the apostle Paul believes we can now put on the law put on Jesus and live like Jesus lived and when we do we throw off Egypt and we live in this new operating system that's sanctified and prepares us for the promised land. Y'all are more quiet than usual. Can't tell if that means you're thinking or if I'm just going. Third observation. At Sinai, God wants to make their special relationship official. And in essence, he wants to take their relationship to the next level. He wants them to be unique among all the peoples on the earth because they have a special relationship with him, but it necessitates entering into a pre-existing agreement that he has made with their ancestors a long time ago. The agreement is called a covenant, and maybe you've heard this word before. Covenants in the Bible, they're not necessarily contracts, but they're more a sacred agreement wherein one person says, I agree to be this kind of person, and I need you to agree to be this kind of person for me, and if you are, we can be and united together. The best equivalent today is when you go to a wedding ceremony, and if they integrate into the ceremony a kind of statement of vows, essentially that's what the laws are. They're these vows and terms of relationship, these ideals and practices I'm going to do to uphold this marriage. Marty Solomon in uh, the Bema podcast has this great lengthy discussion as he traces through the entire story of Exodus a long betrothal and courtship and wedding between Yahweh and Israel. I highly recommend you listen to it. He goes more in depth than I will, but the general gist is that at Sinai, it's actually a wedding. And that Israel has arrives at Sinai like a bride and is told to consecrate themselves. Remember, Moses told them to do this, to ritually purify themselves, to prepare herself for holy matrimony in a way with her husband, Yahweh. And she's told to come to the base of the mountain like a bride is coming down the aisle. And it's at this altar, it's at the base of the mountain where the groom arrives and presents his bride-to-be a wedding covenant. And in traditional Jewish wedding, it's called a ketubah. It's prepared by the groom in advance, and it usually consists of seven to ten to twelve items that the groom basically is saying, this is the foundation of our relationship, and these are the main tenets that I want to build our marriage on. And he's basically telling his bride, this is who I'm going to be, and this is who I hope you will be, And this is what's important to me, and this is what I hope is true of us when we're married together. And so the Ten Commandments are essentially God's ketubah with the people at the altar. They're the I do's, or in the the Ten Commandments case, a lot of the do nots. 
And this is why the prophet Jeremiah, when he's looking back and reflecting on the Exodus, he'll preach centuries later, I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me and followed me through even the barren wilderness. Because in the ancient world, the bride wasn't allowed to contribute to the ketubah, but she did have the chance to accept it or reject it. The same applies for Israel, because it's up to them on whether or not they will say, I do. Did you notice that God doesn't force them into the covenant? God doesn't violate their freedom. They have the opportunity, a choice, to either accept or reject the covenant. And the rest of Israel's history, if you know, is them struggling to accept this covenant. So one of the main, out of the three main metaphors used for God in the Old Testament, one of a father and one of a husband and one of the king, do you know which one is the most prominent? It's not a king. It's a husband. And has anyone ever told you that the laws in the Old Testament, they're not rules for rules' sake. They're originally vows that one person makes to another when they're brought together in unity. So to sin, then, is not simply to transgress a known law of God. To sin is to break these covenant vows with the one you love. And that's why all those boring prophets that you don't read always compare idolatry with adultery. Because the worship of idols in the Old Testament isn't a sin, it's a tryst. It's a violation of one's vows. And that's why when you read the stories of God unleashing his fury on the people, it's not because he's a out-of-control toddler. It's because he's a heartbroken husband looking at his beloved choosing somebody else. When did we ever get the idea that the Ten Commandments are commandments? Did you notice that they're never called that? Nothing in Exodus 20 or later in Deuteronomy 6 calls them laws or commandments. They're not. They're invitations. They're vows to be made between you and your beloved. And the way you say, I do, is through cooperation in the covenant. It's through obedience. Obedience to the law is seen as a response to God and to all who God has done for you, all that God is. Obedience is the one way in which life can be set into a rhythm that maximally is responsive in relationship. Evangelicals love to talk about a personal relationship with God, and nothing gets more personal than a marriage with God. If you truly love someone, if you truly want to be in that kind of relationship, you want to be the kind of person that your partner wants you to be. You don't force it. Now, I ain't a married man, and and I'm not in any serious relationship, though I know a lot of you are working on that. Finally, someone says something. (laughs) But in a very, I'm in a lot of special relationships myself with my parents and with my brother, with my friends, and my willingness to be the kind of person that they expect me to be and they want me to be, I want to be that for them. I know what's expected of me to be a son and to be a brother and to be a father, to be a pastor for you all. I don't want to force myself to do it. I want to do those things. That's what these laws are. Why is it so different when God says, these are the kind of people I want you to be. This is what it means to be my beloved. Just do and don't do these things. And we could be together. God wants more than anything to be with us. But he can't do it if we're not the kind of people he wants us to be because it keeps us apart. He wants us to keep 
the covenant so that we can be that kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So in closing, closing. Terence Freetham, he says again, narrative reinforces the divine intention in the law. Never to leave the people without an indication of what it means to be a community of faith, without a direction in which a person of faith could walk, without any instruction regarding the life of faith. Narrative enhances God's purpose that the law is always for our good and meant to preserve life, that the law always has our best interests at heart. It helps us to see that the law is fundamentally a gift and not a burden. Friends, I invite you to consider your vows with God. I invite you to consider that they're not rules. They're meant for you to be with your beloved. And in a few moments when we partake in communion, when Jesus ushered in this new covenant, the same still applies. What does it mean for us to be in community with God and with one another? as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, God's treasured possession. I invite you to receive our benediction and then have our final song. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, if you want to have some talks about this, I would love to hear your feedback. What is something that's been going through your mind through this series of going through the wilderness? Maybe something that was said today. I'd be happy to talk about it with you afterwards. Receive this benediction. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who trust and obey.